0: to you. It's good to see some of you back who've been either traveling, visiting family, or been ill. It's good to have you with us today. As I was thinking about today's sermon and the topic, which we'll be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 18 today, I was thinking this this topic of love. There are few words that have been more distorted by our world and culture than that one Four letter word. And it makes the job more difficult to understand what the Bible means by love when we try to, to puzzle through what it means to love the Lord, what it means to love our spouse, or even love a friend. And yet we are told by the Bible we will be known by our love, so it's very important that we get it right. And to complicate things even more, the word love, even in the sterile pages of a dictionary, has so many different meanings. I love my wife. I also love my friends and books and cookies. And the dictionary would suggest that all of those loves are different. And part of the problem is language. Some languages like Greek, for example, have a number of different words for different kinds of love to try to capture these various nuances and meanings. Languages like English and Hebrew seem to just have it by recognition of context. One word can be sufficient to mean a bunch of different things. And then when you move outside the boundaries of the dictionary, well, into the realm of culture, we have a whole new set of nuances, don't we? Hollywood and romance novels have taught us that love is an overpowering emotion, We fall into and maybe fall out of love. And and so we're inevitably asking questions like, well, what really is love? And is it true that we fall into love and fall out of love? And if not, why not? Do we fall into love with Jesus? Do we fall out of love with Jesus? What about our spouse and our friends? Well, Jesus once said, whoever loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy than me. So, so clearly Jesus is making this question of understanding love a very significant question. And one last thing before we move on to this morning's passage in 1 Samuel 18, starting with verse 1, what we will read about today, the story of, of David and, and Jonathan, this rela- relationship with one another, is that's going to teach us about a particular aspect Of love, namely the type of love that the Bible considers covenantal faithfulness or covenantal fidelity. And it's one of the most frequently presented types of love in the whole Bible, particularly as it relates to the relationship of man with God. And we're going to learn something important today in this passage. Let's stand as we read 1 Samuel chapter 18, starting with verse 1. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul sent him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. And as they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands. To me, they've ascribed thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand and hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him but all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. Let's pray. Father, as we read and and digest this passage today, help us to clear minds of common representations of Saul and Jonathan and David and and what's going on in, in these verses. And instead, Lord, let us... I pray, have a clear mind and an open heart to learn from your word and to be changed by it. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, two weeks ago, we looked at the encounter between David and Goliath, and Saul's response to David's victory was to ask David about his father. And David's response found at the end of chapter 17 leading into our passage was this, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. And the very next verse after that is verse 1 of our passage, which says that as soon as he had finished speaking, so saying those words, to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Now how, how could that be? And why? That's that's an important question as we start today. Well, before I answer that, let me remind you of the context. Jonathan is the heir to the throne of Israel, he is the oldest son of Saul. And we would expect, wouldn't we, that Jonathan would feel threatened in the face of David's victory? Not only that, the entire nation of Israel is beholden to David. And that would probably make it awkward for Jonathan. We would expect him, I think, to be sizing David up and thinking to himself, he doesn't look so tough. I could take him. And in fact, earlier in 1 Samuel 14, it's Jonathan that saves the day by defeating 20 Philistines with only the assistance of his armor bearer. And as a result, the Philistines were routed. They didn't come back for many years. And so, Jonathan, he's tough too. He's capable. He had his own kind of miraculous encounter as blessed by the Lord. And he loved the Lord. He's also a lot older than David, by the way. You probably didn't expect me to say that because the cartoons have Jonathan and David all the same age, don't they? And uh, young men. But, you know, according to 2 Samuel 5. David was 30 years old when he became king. And Acts 13.21 tells us that Saul reigned for 40 years. So that means if you do your math, David being 30, when he started to reign at the end of Saul's reign, that means he was born when? Ten years after Saul started reigning, right? According to 1 Samuel 13, Jonathan was fighting against the Philistines during the third year of his father's reign. And to be a warrior, you typically were at least 20 years old. So if you do, the, again, the math, you discover Jonathan is at least 10 and probably as much as 30 years older than David. And that makes verse 1 even more interesting. The Hebrew for the phrase, the soul was knit, is the same phrase used in Genesis 44, where we read how Jacob's life was bound up with his son Benjamin's life. You can see there in the passage behind me that this is Judah. He's talking to Joseph in Egypt, explaining why he needs to to leave Benjamin or to To bring Benjamin back to his father, when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down, for we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. I I know a lot of people read that and and say, well, did the other ten think that they were chopped liver or something, right? That's always a frustration. One left me, and I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces. I've never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then, as his, and here comes the phrase, as his life is bound up in the boy's life, same phrase in the Hebrew as his soul was knit to David's soul. As soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die, and your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant our father with sorrow to Sheol. And so that's interesting to me that this, this idea of being so tightly bound, the welfare of one with the other, is the same phrase that's being used here in our passage. And we ask, why did Jonathan have that kind of love for David? Well, we can speculate over some of the reasons. First, part of the reason is likely a result of David's answer to Saul. When Saul asked for the name of David's father, David said, I am the son of Jesse, your servant. David had just killed Goliath and saved the nation, but he did not stand before Saul in pride, but rather in the humility of a servant who acknowledges his position before king Saul. Second, what was there not to admire of the passionate zeal of a young man Like David, who unlike every other Israelite that had cowered in fear for 40 days as Goliath came out and said, send out a champion to stand against me instead, declares that God will claim the victory and then proceeds to go out confidently, not armored himself, but rather surrounded in the grace and the strength of God and the faith that God would bring down this giant. Third, David had been serving in Saul's house already. Chapter 16 relates how Saul, troubled and tormented after God had rejected him as king, had sent for a man to play the lyre, to which is, is like a, a, a psalter or a, a small harp-type instrument, and to, to sing and to play for him and to kind of soothe him, to calm him. So Saul first knew David as a musician. And chapter 16 actually says that Saul came to love him himself. Saul did. And made him his armor bearer. Now Jonathan isn't mentioned in chapter 16, but it's hard to believe that he would not have had any interaction with David during those early days before the Goliath incident. And so whatever affection Jonathan may have had already for this younger man, uh, this David, when he appeared before his father Saul with a humble spirit, having defeated Goliath in the name of the Lord, all of that together, it says that as soon as he finished speaking, Jonathan loved him. And from that point forward, considered his soul or life, as we saw with Genesis 44, bound up with David's. Verse three adds that this love motivated Jonathan to make a covenant with David. And more details about that are revealed in chapter 20, where we read, "And Jonathan said to David, "The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness." When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, then the Lord do so to Jonathan and more. Also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die, and do not cut off your steadfast love for my house forever, when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. Now part of the covenant between these two men was the promise to be good to one another, and to each other's future descendants. But if you note in our passage in verse 4, Jonathan strips himself of the robe that's on him and also gives it to him along with his armor and his sword, his bow, and his belt. And that's actually pretty incredible because Jonathan's robe, his armor, his weapons, they all symbolize his royal privilege and station. In fact, the verse right there is the climactic moment in our entire passage for today, in 1 Samuel 16. Why is that the key verse? It's because Jonathan is symbolically transferring his own royal rights and prerogatives to David, chief of which is to be heir to the throne. Why? It's not just because he loves David. (laughs) which we have already seen that he does. More importantly, Jonathan in faith recognizes that God is the true ruler of Israel. God is the ruler of Israel, and he had made David king. He had anointed David to be the next ruler. Now, again, we don't know what conversations had taken place between David and Jonathan. But Jonathan's actions suggest that he likely knew that Samuel had anointed David king. It's a testament to Jonathan's faith and character that he didn't see that as a threat, but rather acted in faith to surrender his rights that he really didn't possess. The kingdom was not Jonathan's to inherit. It was David's. And so Jonathan in this this moment is modeling the way a believer is knit in a bond of covenant faith and love with Jesus Christ. Saving faith not only involves agreeing to the truths about Jesus, but also includes giving him our allegiance, surrendering our will to his reign. How much worthy is Jesus Christ of our covenant faithfulness than David was of Jonathan? And we'll come back to these two in a moment, but first I want you to look at another relationship that's brought out in this chapter, and that is the relationship between Saul and David. Note from verse 2 that Saul would not let David return to his father's house. We're not given the answers or the reasons why, but I believe we have the answer partially expressed for us in chapter 14, verse 52. It's in that verse that we read that whenever Saul saw a strong or valiant man, he took that man and he made them a part of his personal bodyguard. (laughs) Smart. Verse 5 tells us that Saul set David over his men of war. So clearly Saul saw, saw David now not just as a musician, but as a soldier, and any man that could destroy Philistia's best ought to be able to develop morale in the troops And stay close to the king and protect him. We would expect this behavior, of course. That was, as I said, a smart move. We also know that Saul, as as we saw earlier, loved David and trusted him. But then we look again at verses 6 and 7. And we read that as they were coming home. This is coming home from the battle. So this had not taken place where the king's palace, where he ruled from, was, but rather this was in that valley to the north. They have to walk a ways back. But as they approach back to the city, the women come out, not only of their city, but all along they're coming out from these various territories and singing and dancing to meet Saul with tambourines and songs of joy. And, of course, Saul would expect a tribute to Israel, a tribute to the army, a tribute to him. This is the man, after all, that every time that they had a victory, he did what? He set up a monument of himself at the battle site, right? So what we're expecting is Saul... It's going to see that the people acknowledge him, and they do. Saul has killed his thousands, and he, he, he stands up a little straighter in pride. But David, his ten thousands. And Saul, as often happens when we are governed by pride, when we are governed by self-love, when that is threatened, it is an instant motivation, right, and catalyst towards jealousy and bitterness and anger. We've lost control all of a sudden. Lost the respect and admiration that we think that we deserve. And so it says that Saul was very angry. And he says, they've ascribed to David 10,000, probably in his mind he's saying, All he did was kill one person. You know, I've I've been victor over multiple battles. I have literally been responsible for the death of thousands. Now what more could David have than the kingdom if he's going to have the admiration and adoration of the people? And a good question to ask is how long did it take Saul to become jealous of David? Verse 6 says that it was as they were coming home from battle that he eyed David with concern from that day on. But think about it for a second. Maybe even think about your own experiences in Saul's tormented mind. It only took this adoration of the people to turn him against the king. And what is he doing in his mind? What is Saul doing? He's doing what many jealous people do. He is placing his own jealous thoughts and reasoning upon David. In David's place, Saul would have been ambitious. In David's place, Saul would have been ambitious. He would have considered the throne. But David is not Saul. And David has proven himself through his faithful actions in the past That he is not Saul, or at least that he doesn't do the things that Saul is concerned about. And yet it is, it's why jealousy is so powerfully relationship damaging, that in the face of jealousy, we tend to superimpose ourselves upon the other person. There was nothing in David's actions to suggest that Saul's suspicions could or would be true. And yet, the other part of this is that what happens is we superimpose ourselves in the other person, and then our speculation becomes what? It becomes reality. So David is not just eyeing the throne as Saul would. He wants the throne. That's what jealousy does. And it only gets worse in verse 10 the very next day and mind you only a few days after David has saved Israel a harmful spirit from God rushes upon Saul and he raves within his house while David is playing the lyre so David David started out in this position of soothing the king and then the faithfulness made him an armor bearer in the household he steps out for a moment you know cuz he's kind of done double duty of helping out the king, but also going and, and helping take care of his family's flocks. After and he steps out of that for a moment. It's the Goliath incident in chapter 17. And then from that, Saul says, you're not going back home. You're going to stay here 100% of the time. But really, what is he going to be? He's going to be part musician, part soldier, right? So he goes back to his normal duties. But in that next day, this... We find Saul raving and deciding to hurl his spear. And don't let, I will pin David to the wall somehow seem uh, nice. I mean, the words pin David to the wall is, I'm going to send a spear, I'm going to kill David. That's what that is. When Samuel anointed David, the Bible tells us that God's spirit left Saul to be replaced by a distressing or evil spirit. We're told in verse 10, in some translations, like the New King James, that Saul, tormented by this spirit in in that passage of ours today, instead of raved, the New King James has prophesied. But that's probably not the best translation into English. Instead, the ESV that I use today uses the word raved. The Hebrew word behind raved does sometimes mean prophesy, but it also can mean to act with uncontrolled passion like a crazy person. That's likely the better understanding for this passage. Saul has a distressing spirit come upon him, and in jealousy over David, whom he is now convinced himself is wanting the throne, is ambitious for the throne, who's playing the music, can you imagine in his mind, David playing this this psalter, he's just thinking of the next thing that he can do to take over my throne. In that crazed distress and torment, what he wants now is David's death. What a contrast, right? Between Saul and his son Jonathan in their responses to David. And I want to suggest this. This is a picture of the two responses that people have to Christ. They illustrate what it means to either hate Jesus or to love him. It is impossible to take a neutral position with regard to Christ. You can't say something like, I'm not a believer in Jesus, but I'm not an unbeliever either. You can't say, I believe that Jesus was a moral individual and a great teacher. I would even say he's one of the most important people that ever lived, but God a resurrection from the dead? I'm not against Christianity. You can believe whatever you want. I'm just not a follower of myself. I'm neutral. That attitude is not possible. Jesus put it simply in Matthew 12:30 whoever is not with me is against me. Why? Because Jesus is the Christ. He is God's anointed king. One is either a friend of the king or an enemy. In our study of Saul and Jonathan's response to David, we've seen an example of what it is to love Jesus. We see in Saul a fear of God's holiness and of God's truth. Why do I say that? I say that because David's victory over Goliath had been due to God's favor. And so David represents the holy strength and power of God working through men. He represents exactly what God had said he was removing from Saul. He also represents the truth that Samuel had spoken to Saul. That the kingdom had been taken away and given to another. And so while Saul fears and resents David, what he really is fearing and resenting is the Lord. And James 4 tells us that conflicts develop between us because of the desires of our flesh, and foremost of those desires is pride, self-love, self-centeredness, self-exaltation. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is this announcement that the whole world is under the sovereign rule of the creator of the universe. All things must come under his rule. Every person that does not submit to him is in conflict with the will of God. And so the problem is that the self-exaltation that James 4 mentions is motivating us in our relational conflicts. and It's, re- it's motivating us in our either love for or... Hatred towards God. And in the day-to-day affairs of life, it may not be obvious to us that our wills are in opposition to the will of God. We may think that we want many good things. Perhaps we act with what seems like integrity most of the time, but the will of God is not just that we should want and do good things, it is that Jesus Christ should be king. that we should no longer do our will, even as we saw Jesus in his own example to the Father, I do nothing of my own accord, but I only do that which I see the Father doing. That is what it means to love and serve God. Psalm 2 describes the situation. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves... And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed one, saying, let us break their bonds and pieces and cast their cords from us. Doesn't that sound like Saul's attitude? Saul's attitude is actually the common response of the people and the nations to God. In fact, the marvelous wonder of the gospel is that by the power of God's spirit, that response can actually be changed. And so, Psalm 2 does express the call of the gospel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Don't have that attitude of trying to throw off the bonds of the Lord. But instead, be warned. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Friends, you can respond like Saul and the rest of the world and try to throw off the cords of God's rule. You can rave at God's holiness and truth and be a participant with those who tried to, like Saul pinning David to the tent wall, who tried to kill Jesus. Or you can respond like Jonathan and submit to Christ with humility. That is true covenantal love, true covenantal faithfulness. As Jesus told his disciples, if you love me, you will obey me. Note the contrast between Saul and Jonathan. Saul wants to kill David. Jonathan delights in David. Whatever danger David seemed to pose to Saul's personal status became a personal danger to Jonathan as well. But where Saul saw David as a threat, Jonathan saw David's goodness and God's providence so completely opposite. When Jesus came, he encountered those two responses. There were some who desired to kill him. They saw him in one way or another as a threat. Others loved him because they saw in him the goodness and providence of God. And so a question is, how do you see Jesus? Do you see him as a threat to your lifestyle, as a threat to your desires, as a threat to your well-being, or do you see him in his goodness, and do you see in him the providence of God? I mentioned earlier, and we see in verse 4 of our passage, that Saul could not deny the goodness of David or the providence of God, and yet that same goodness motivates Saul's jealous, fear, and self-protective actions. Jesus calls you to a higher way. He came to bring life, and yet people crucified him. Jonathan loved David, desired to see him successful. Saul grew increasingly obsessed with removing David permanently. And there will come a time in the story of 1 Samuel that Saul will leave every other concern of his kingdom. The only thing that ever stops him from what becomes an obsessive pursuit of destroying David is when danger threatens the kingdom at home. And he has to return. But this becomes this maddening obsession for Saul. And it is the same with Jesus. Those who delight in the goodness and grace of our Lord Jesus are those who are joyful at the fact that he is reigning, at the fact that he receives the attention and the adoration of people. They recognize that God has raised him from the dead and placed him at his right hand. They are happily dependent upon him for every good and perfect gift. And what they want to do is give everything of their own to him and simply ask that he would be good to them and to their children. Does that describe you? Or are you so intent on pursuing your own ways that as you encounter God's principles, it just makes you increasingly frustrated and angry and bitter at the requirements of God? And if we follow this example to the end, it will set us obsessively in our ways of standing against the kingdom of God. There's one more thing I want to say about the relationship between Jonathan and David and by extension between us and Christ. As I noted earlier, our passage says that Jonathan and David covenanted with one another. And we saw how that covenant was one of mutual service and and protection. Each one would look out for and safeguard the interests of the other. And, And it even surpassed Jonathan's familial loyalty. I hope you're starting to look through and remember how I said at the beginning, how Jesus says that your love for father and mother has to pale in comparison to the degree of your love for me. And we see in that picture of Jonathan saying, That covenantal faithfulness to David would would surpass even his faithfulness to his father, the king. But just as David promised to remember Jonathan's house, so does God promise to be Lord to you and to your children. That is indeed something to say, amen. God has said that nothing will separate us from him. He is committed to serving us, to protecting us. And the best example of David's faithfulness to the covenant is seen later after Jonathan dies and and he is made king. At some point, David wonders if there's anyone still left of Jonathan's family to whom he can show kindness. And that's when he's told about a crippled man named Mephibosheth who lived in the town of Lodabar. And I occasionally mention Mephibosheth during the Lord's Table, so I don't want to retell the story. What I do want to remind you of and point to you again is is that the natural response of any of Jonathan's and by extension Saul's heirs would be to fear David's revenge. Mephibosheth, after all, is crippled because... When he was five years old, his father was killed, and his nurse fleed the home in fear that David, the new king, would kill this young boy. And she trips. She drops Mephibosheth and breaks his leg. The important part of the story is that David summons Mephibosheth to the palace who suspects that his life is over. And instead, David says, do not be afraid. Surely I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. And in an instant, Mephibosheth goes from being a condemned rebel against the king to be adopted into the royal family. What is your servant, Mephibosheth asks, that you should regard, show regard for a dead dog like me? And David responds by saying to one of Saul's living servants, all that belong to Saul, all that belong to his house, I've given to your master's grandson, and you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him, shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. And that story always amazes me. Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of his own son's. Friends, in just a moment, we will be invited to the king's table. Not King David's table, but King Jesus' table. And what are we that God should notice dead dogs such as us? Rebels that were crippled by the fall. We were slaves to sin. We were rebels to the king of kings, and we deserved only his revenge and anger. Why should God not put us to death for what we have done? The tremendous thing is this in bringing us into the covenant that God made with his people, we are not just his servants, we are his children. Like Mephibosheth, we have been invited to eat at the king's table, and God has given us an inheritance and a fellowship that we don't deserve. What love is this that we who are not fit to eat the scraps from the table should dine with the king and be made princes and princesses in the royal family? It is the reason why I think that imagery that Jesus gives of the royal supper of the lamb is so vivid and just so moving, isn't it? Because it it brings in all of this context, especially something like the story of Mephibosheth into it, that we should eat the royal supper. So friends, if you want a definition of covenantal love and faithfulness, take it from the scriptures, take it from our passage today and revel in the example that we've seen. We have done nothing but God covenanted with Adam, with Abraham, with others, with you. He covenanted to save a people to himself and in his mercy sent his son who died on the cross so that sinners, dead dogs like us, could be forgiven and we can respond like Saul in jealousy and resentment and an attempt to put him away as far away as possible. And I hope as you looked at that example, you said... How in the world could Saul have that kind of a response? It's so it's so wrong. And yet, that is the natural response of fallen man and woman. Or we can respond like Jonathan and love the Lord. And it really is those two. Do you love Jesus? How are you responding to Christ? Will you put your robe and your sword and your belt and bow at Christ's service and commit yourself to him with your soul knit to the Savior's? Let's pray. Father, we do desire to have that kind of unquestioning, faithful love that Jonathan had for David. And it seems so right that this is what we should do, Lord. That we should, in fact, have the response of Jonathan. We look at Saul's response and and we are put off by it. We We see what David did and then we see the jealousy and the unreasoning bitterness and anger and frustration and self-love in Saul and we say to ourselves, that wouldn't be us and yet it is so often us. Father, forgive us for not having enough the response of Jonathan. And instead, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to serve you faithfully and to revel in the fact that you have in grace brought us to your table as your child. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.